1967 movie, Cool Hand Luke. In this movie now, Paul Newman plays a prisoner, and he's in the southern prison camp, and the warden and he, they're clashing. Cool Hand Luke's kind of a rebel. He doesn't want to break, but the warden wants to break his spirit. After one particular altercation, the warden says, what we have here is a failure to what? Communicate. A failure to communicate. You can believe that movie's over 50 years old now. And yet most of us can still repeat that line. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Maybe even you haven't seen the movie, but that phrase has entered into the English lexicon. Well, what God had with Jonah was a failure to communicate. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message that I give you. Well, if that sounds familiar, it's because we're familiar with the first chapter. This is basically the same message that God had for Jonah to begin with, but there was a failure to communicate. And instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah went west to Tarshish. The big storm came upon their boat. He was thrown overseas, and the fish swallowed him up. And so we've been in an overarching theme in this sermon series of missions. It's kind of the theme of Jonah, missions. So this sermon series, it's not about having a better marriage, better relationships, how to make more money, how to be successful at work. It's not about us at all. It's about missions. What do we mean when we say missions? Well, we mean the Great Commission, taking the gospel to other people. Jesus says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So whether we're doing that here locally in town or statewide or nationally or internationally, that's our mission. So in Jonah chapter 1, we saw where Jonah received the call to missions. And last week in chapter 2, we saw where God prepared Jonah's heart for mission primarily through prayer. And what I want us to see this morning as we continue, third chapter this Sunday and then the fourth chapter next Sunday, is the result of missions. We're going to see the results of missions today. And basically, I mean, you could say a lot of things right here, but the result of missions is that it changes people's lives, changed lives. Let's pick up in verse 3 of chapter 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord this time, and he went to Nineveh. Nineveh was a very large city, if you recall. It's about 800,000 in population of Nineveh capital city of Assyria. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. So Jonah's projectile vomited onto the shore. He picks the seaweed out of his hair. He starts traveling through the city. He's preaching this message, pretty short, eight words. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. A preacher after my own heart preaching nice short sermons. I don't know what y'all do when you go on vacation. When I go on vacation, I ask the locals, in what church does the preacher preach the shortest sermons? That's how I pick my church. You may think, Steve, we thought you were more spiritual than that. I'm not. I like short sermons. So he preaches this, and the Bible says that they believed God. I mean, this eight-word message that Jonah's preached, they believed God. That's kind of remarkable in and of itself. Why would they be so receptive to the message of Jonah? Well, I think, I don't know what you think, but I think it probably had something to do with the circumstances that Jonah had just 
been through, how he wound up back on shore. This whole thing of being swallowed by the whale three days and nights in the belly of the whale. They knew about that in Nineveh. Jesus said, Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Have you ever thought of that? What does that mean? Jonah was a sign. What did he signify? It's a sign that something supernatural has happened to this man. This is extraordinary. It's not ordinary. It's extraordinary that somebody would be swallowed by a whale. He would live to tell about it. His appearance may have been altered in some way. The Ninevites knew that. It wasn't a fable to them. They knew that it had happened. So they're listening. They're paying attention to this man. A word from God is coming. Same thing for us. We get the same kind of sign. Jesus said the only sign this generation is going to get is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights, he said, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That's the sign. Now, most of us are Christians. And probably we already believe. But if there's someone who does not believe or somebody who's watching or somebody who's listening, hasn't come to faith yet, waiting for a sign, here's your sign. <laughs> the sign is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul preached, he says, God is calling on men everywhere to repent. Because he's given one name under heaven by which men must be saved. And he has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's it. That's the sign. That's the proof. We're all called to believe based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So something similar in Nineveh. So they believe. And then comes the change. Verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. So a fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, this would have been Adad Nirari III. When it reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So remember he said, change lives. There's a lot of change that's going on right here. This is repentance taking place in the people's hearts. The outward expression of that is sackcloth, the wearing fasting, wearing sackcloth, sitting in dust and ashes. Sackcloth is goat hair, basically. Goat hair. You ever felt the goat hair? Been to the petting zoo? Pet the goat? It's kind of rough. It's kind of coarse. If you're wearing goat hair, it's not cashmere. It doesn't feel comfortable. The devil wears Prada. The Ninevites wore goat hair. And that's the point. It's uncomfortable. So it's because we're uncomfortable in our hearts. We want to show you, God, that we're uncomfortable all over and all under. They even put the goat hair on their animals. That's some serious repentance. And you're making your cat and your dog wear goat hair. Right? Or your cow or your sheep, presumably not your goat. The goat's already got the goat hair. But they all wore goat hair. Men, women, animals, children, they've all got that on because it shows the repentance. And the repenting change, change. So they're changing, they're repenting from their evil ways and from their violence. 
Now, if you recall, we talked a little bit about this in week one. This is a very violent culture and society. Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is a war machine. They're rolling over people. They dominate. They're cruel. They're vicious. Life, human life is worthless. In museums today, there are reliefs from Assyria. Reliefs are pictures taken from palace walls that show the kind of tortures that they inflicted on people. People impaled, decapitated, flayed, tongues pulled out. Not only were they violent, they were boasting about it. On their pillars, there's these inscriptions. Let me just read to you some, give you a sample. What's going on in their society? One leader says, I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. A big pillar just made of heads. I flayed all the chief men who had revolted and covered the pillar with their skins. Many within the border of my own land, I flayed and spread out their skins upon the wall. They're into flaying here. You know how you fillet a fish? They fillet people and put the skins up. These are all separate quotations. I cut off the limbs of the officers who'd rebelled. Here's another one. 3,000 captives I burned with fire. Here's another one. From some, I cut off their hands and fingers. Others, I cut off their noses and ears. And of many, I put out their eyes. I made one pillar from the bodies and another of the heads. Uh, so it's a very violent society, very cruel. And they changed. They repented. That's Adad Narari right there. They, good looking guy. I mean, it's a good picture of him. Nice likeness. Adad Narari. It's all coming top down. They're changing and repenting from these violent ways and they needed to. Now let me read you a quote. I'll wager you probably have not heard this before. This is from a history book called The Ancient World, Volume 2. The historian is Francis Nickel. Here's what he writes. A strange religious revolution, a strange religious revolution took place in the time of Adad Nirari III. A monotheistic revolution. Biblical chronology places Jonah's ministry in the time of Jeroboam II of Israel, who reigned from 793 to 753 B.C. Hence, Jonah's mission to Nineveh occurred in the reign of Adad-Nirari III and may have had something to do with his decision to abandon the old polytheistic gods and serve only one deity. You think? One thing that characterized all cultures and societies of antiquity was polytheism. Right? There's only one culture and society of antiquity that was monotheistic. Which one was that? Judaism. That's what was so unique, remarkable, stunning about Judaism, the nation of Israel. Of all these nations and cultures and peoples, there's only one monotheistic people. That's Israel, Judah. The Jews. So Assyria, of course they worship many gods, including the god Molech, and they're sacrificing their babies to these gods. And then, in the 8th century B.C., during the reign of Adad-Nirari III, there's this one window of time where the Assyrians turn from polytheism to monotheism. And it just happens to coincide with the ministry of Jonah. And the message of Jonah. Quite the coincidence, don't you think? That's because the Bible is not a lot of once upon a time fairy tales. The Bible is historical truth. 
And Jonah really went to Nineveh. And those people heard, and they repented, and their lives and even their entire culture was changed. That change was a good thing for them. Don't you think they would rather live in a culture that was characterized by monotheism and the message that all men and women are created in the image of God and have infinite value and worth and the human rights would begin. Any society where the message of God permeates the society, the human rights begin to rise, the level of their lifestyle rises. Sure, they would have preferred that. But it bears emphasizing because there is an idea these days that Eh, Christianity is a Western religion, and we ought to just stay home and mind our own business, and other people have their beliefs, and we have our beliefs, so let them believe what they want to, we'll believe what we want to, you shouldn't interfere with them. Like Star Trek, the Prime Directive, sorry to have two Star Trek illustrations in a row here last week and this week, but the Prime Directive in Star Trek is as you visit other planets, you do not interfere with the natural evolution of their people in society. People believe that today. Don't go over there. Bring our Western religion. All religions teach basically the same thing. All wind up in the same place. Maybe you've heard that before. Just leave them alone. But I don't believe that's necessarily true. I mean, you basically, that's moral equivalence, moral equivalence. The idea that all religions are basically the same, teach the same thing. They don't. For instance, we Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Modern day Jews don't believe that. We Christians believe Jesus rose from the grave. Muslims do not believe that. Believe Jesus was a prophet, but not the Son of God, not that he rose from the grave. So these are contradictory truth claims. Now, our society is built on the law of non-contradiction. All logic is. The law of non-contradiction, students, is that a statement, all things being equal, any given statement cannot be true and not true at the same time. This Music stand is made of metal, it's not made of wood. You can't say it's made of metal and it's made of wood or not made of metal and it's made of metal at the same time. Those two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time. The law of non-contradiction. But if you take an entry-level philosophy class, they may tell you, well, yeah, but in Western thought, it's either or. We think it's either metal or it's not metal. Everything's either or. But in Eastern thought, eh, they they don't get hung up on that. It can be both and. It can be metal and not metal at the same time. Some Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, they're both in, not either or. Ravi Zacharias, the late Ravi Zacharias, was fond of saying, he was from India. He would say, when you go to India, even in India, if you're a Hindu and you're crossing the street, you look both ways because it's not both and, it's either the bus or you. It's either or, and that's how people live their lives, logically, rationally. Two conflicting truth claims cannot both be true at the same time. And so we take our message, and it is a message that does change other people, and if it permeates a society, it changes their culture for the good. Rachel Saint, years ago, Rachel Saint, had a burden on her heart to take the gospel to the Wydoni natives of Ecuador. Now, the problem was they were very resistant to missions or any strangers coming into their society. They had a habit of spearing, spearing people to death. In fact, Rachel's saint's brother, Nate Saint, was a missionary. He flew a plane for Mission Aviation Fellowship. 
he and four other missionaries flew into Ecuador. They had tried to reach the Waidani Indians. They were all five speared to death. That story is told in the book Through Gates of Splendor. That story, pretty remarkable book. But anyway, that was Rachel's brother. But that only re-energized her, reinforced her desire to take the gospel to these people. Within their culture, the Waidoni culture, they had no method of conflict resolution other than murder. They, they speared each other to death all the time. They didn't sit down and discuss it. There was no arbitration. There was no negotiation. If you and I have a conflict or an argument, I'm, I wait my chance and I'm going to spear you to death. That, was, that characterized their culture. So Rachel Saint met and made the acquaintance of a Waidoni woman named Dayuma. Dayuma taught Rachel their language, the Waidoni language. Over a period of years, she was able to access their society and their culture. They embraced her. They accepted her. She taught them the gospel. She translated the New Testament into their language. She spent 20 years with the Waidoni until she died and was buried with her people in Ecuador, and it transformed their culture. They replaced the law of the jungle and the law of murder with the law of love and the law of Christ. And they say they're better off for it. They named her Star, uh, Nimu, N-I-M-U, Star. And they say one day we're going to be together again because God is building a house for all of us in heaven. We have something that changes people's lives. Now, <clears throat> so I've got this up here with me today. Just my little object lesson. Anybody know what this is? It's uh, some people, maybe if you're from the north originally, you might think of it as a boot dryer. I call it, it's a shoe dryer. It's the original peat shoe dryer, P-E-E-T. I love this thing. I've talked to many, I've talked, you know, I don't always talk about it, but I'll tell you, if I wasn't a preacher, I would be a salesman for the peat shoe dryer. Now, I'm a runner. And I run every day. I can't run on hard surfaces because of the plantar fasciitis, so I run on soft surfaces, usually on the grass. Every morning I run in the grass over there in the ball field, which means my shoes get soaking wet every day. So every day, every morning, I come home from running. So what you do, you plug this shoe dryer in, and it's got a heating element on the bottom. Mine stays plugged in all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's called invection heat. The heat comes up through these tubes and out the top. There's no fan or anything. It just naturally comes up. You take off your wet shoes, and you put them on the end like this. And in about two or three hours, they're dried out, warm, and toasty. Now, you can leave them on for 24 hours or a week or a month. It will not hurt the shoes, but it dries them out. Even if you don't run, even if you're like John, John, I saw him this morning, plays basketball all the time. I know his sneakers get stinky and smelly just from perspiration. John, you take those sneakers off, put them up here. They're going to smell so good in two or three hours. It makes the shoes last longer. You can do shoes, you can do boots, you can put gloves on there. I give these as gifts. I've given them to all of my kids. I gave one to my mom up in Jacksonville so I can use it when I go visit her. I need another one. I really need two. But anyhow, I love talking to people about the peat shoe dryer because I know it will make their lives better. It's just one of those things that works and makes it better. We have something, don't we, in the gospel 
that makes individual lives better and to the degree it permeates a society makes the entire culture and society better. I'm not saying it solves all of our problems, but I was thinking about this. Here are some things that have changed about our lives when we, be, when we become Christians and it continues to change our lives regardless of it altering our circumstances or some problems that we may be dealing with. When we are Christians, we know who we are and how we got here. We live with a purpose, and we know what our purpose is. As Christians, we are optimistic about the future because we know we have a future with God in heaven. We have a constant companion who is God. Even if we live alone, we're never alone. And we know what the good life is and how to live the good life and are empowered to live the good life by the Holy Spirit within us. The gospel changes everyone's lives for the better. So that's my primary point this morning, but the gospel, and I'm only spending a couple of minutes on this second point, not only does it change our lives, and that's important, but it changes our destiny. The, the, the missions changes destiny. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So this is their destiny. It's great to change someone's circumstances or their lives, but unless we change their destiny, right? you're just, as one person said, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, they were saved from the temporal judgment that had been threatened. Whether or not their eternal destiny was changed, I don't know, but I do believe that this foreshadowed how the gospel changes people's eternal destiny. So not just our lives, but our destiny is changed. And that's the most important thing. So as we close, I want to read to you the lyrics of a song that was popular about 30 years ago. And it's called, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. And it kind of typifies what I'm getting at here. Let me read you these lyrics. I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We walked upon the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw the young man. He was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now. And then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would teach the word for little ears and eyes. And then one day, because of what I learned, I believed and was baptized. And then another girl stood before you and said, remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry? You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came, far as the eye could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity, little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, in heaven, now proclaimed. And I know up in heaven, you're not supposed to cry, but I'm almost sure there were tears in your eyes. As Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord, and he said, my child, look around you, great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we're so glad that you gave Jesus, your only son, to be the missionary to come here to earth, die on the cross, rise from the grave, so that all of us here in this room could have our lives changed and our destinies changed. And now, like Jesus, he has sent us out. We have something to share one way or another, in our own way, something to share that actually changes someone else's life. They can live with love, joy, and peace, this great triumvirate, and also have a destiny with you and us in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.